Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Praise the Lord. Man, what a great night. Thank you all. Appreciate you guys leading us tonight. Beautiful. Um, wow. So, um, I, man, I see a handful of faces in the room that we have not met. So can I just introduce myself to you a little bit? Most of you in the room I know, but some of you I don't. I'm Lance Nelson. Um, I'm uh, a part of Lake, Lakeview Assembly. Um, been a part, a member here, worshipped here for several years now. And, uh, but I'm also part of a ministry called Compact Family Services. Uh, it's the Assemblies of God Child Welfare Agency, and it happens to be headquartered right here in Hot Springs. And so uh, I'm, I'm a, a pastor on assignment there, and so uh, a lot of what I do has me engaging churches. Uh, I'm in a season right now where I'm doing a lot of traveling, so I don't get to worship in person as much here um, as, as I would like to, uh, but I'm out there carrying the good word, and I get to join you guys online, so... Uh, Pastor Matt is a great friend and a brother, and I don't know where I'd be without him. Um, that's probably some of your stories in the room too, right? The, the, Matt and Emily Stevenson are just rock stars for Jesus, and they've, they've been such a blessing to me in my life. So uh, Pastor Matt asked me if I would share tonight, and I, I, I want to share. I want to share something that the Lord has given me that may be of everything the Lord has deposited in my spirit in my short lifetime, it may be the most important, at least it is to me. And what I've found is when I'm able to unpack some of these truths with other believers, that it's also very impactful for them. So I just want to be a blessing to you tonight. I just want to encourage you a little bit this evening. And I want to talk about just how incredibly redemptive our God is. Does anybody know God as a redeemer? Have you met him that way? Do you, do you understand him as a redemptive God? And when we use that language, just to make sure we're on the same page, when we redeem something, it means we put it back better than we found it, right? That, that we find it in its current state and we restore and redeem and make it even better. And so with me, when the Lord found me in my mess, he introduced me to himself as a redeemer and he rewrote my story. So I think there's probably a lot of you in the room that understand what I mean when I say Jesus can rewrite a story like nobody else. And when we put the pieces in his hands, he's, oh, this is the way I describe it. When I've come to him with nothing but pieces and I hand it to him, he's able to sew it together so beautifully that any, any seamstresses in the room, anybody know about that? Your mama, grandma was a seamstress. He's able to put it together so beautifully that when you flip it over, you can't even find the seam. That's, that's what God can do when he's given all of the pieces. And so I know that. I know that firsthand. I've experienced God's redemptive work in my own life. And he's so complete. He's so incredibly detailed that he never leaves anything undone in the process. He cares about the whole thing. And so put that in the back of your mind because that's got to be the backdrop about what we're going to be sharing this evening but I want to talk to you about a story that I read in Joshua chapter 5 that um, sort of rocked my world when I saw it the way that the Lord showed me. And it sent me on a journey through Scripture that I'm kind of hopeful I can take you on tonight with me. So here's what happened. In Joshua chapter 5, you guys understand and you'll remember the story about how God led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. You remember that story? The Exodus story. Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Moses used Moses to, to, to break free, and all the children of Israel were free from Egyptian bondage, and they went on a journey, a 40-year journey, into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So in the book of Joshua, we pick up with the chapter of the story where God is about to bring them into the promised land after their 40-year journey. And so in Joshua chapter 5, before they go in, like immediately before they go into the promised land, God stops them and says, I've got to deal with one little piece we need to talk about. And he says, first things first, I need, I need to have a little special ceremony, and we're going we're gonna to circumcise all the men of Israel, because the circumcision, of course, had been the sign of the covenant between the people and, and God. And there had been two generations that had come and gone, and they'd kind of let that go, and they weren't in that business anymore. And God said, we need, to, we need to restore that. We need to restore the sign of the covenant. We're going to circumcise all the men. And so this is what happened in 
Joshua chapter 5, he said in verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth, Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the, of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born in the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to, the fathers to, to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And here's the important verse right here. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today, somebody say today, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so they named that place. It's called Gilgal to this day. So I was reading this um, on a journey reading through Scripture and when I got to this particular verse, it was one of those moments, you ever have an encounter with the word that you're just like, no, wait, what? Wait, hold on, wait, there's something there I need to dial in and see. It said, God said to the children of Israel, he says, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Now, when you're, when you're talking Christian language and Bible language and faith language, sometimes there are some words that... We, we can sometimes pretend we know the meaning to or assume we know the meaning to and it just goes in one ear and out the other. Things like maybe redemption is one of those words or sanctification or, or um, iniquity or whatever. We hear these words and we know they're Bible words and we know they mean something and we might even have a category of that's good or it's bad but we might or might not always dial in. And so in this particular word, I, I saw it, it said reproach. Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. And I put that in the category of bad, because God wants to do something with it, right? He rolls it away. He says, now it's behind you, the reproach of Egypt. But what was confusing to me in that moment when I sat staring at that page and that word jumping off the page at me, what became confusing to me is we're talking about a collective nation of people that God had miraculously set free and delivered from their bondage and four decades have now passed and God says the process is not complete. There's still a piece of this that is hanging on to you. And we need to deal with it right now. So when he says, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt, what he's saying is, in that miracle moment when I caused the waters to part and you to go through on dry land, and in those miracle moments when I brought manna down from heaven to feed you, in those miracle moments when water flowed from the rock, or I spoke from a booming voice on a mountain and delivered the law of God to you, all of those moments combined, there's still something that's hanging on to you that needs to be dealt with separate from the way that I've redeemed you and set you free from your past. It's hanging there. And now what does that do to me? It sends me on a journey through scripture where I'm just flipping pages. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? There's something that God needs to do yet after 40 years, 40 years post-miraculous post delivery, there's still something God needs to do. And my suspicion was lit up in me that Maybe there's some truth there for all of us. That there are things that God has done in each of us. But if we have not dealt with the root of the issue, it still hangs on and defines us. So what is reproach? What in the world is this thing called reproach? Whatever it was, there were three, there were three excuse me, four clues. I found four clues in Scripture to help me kind of unpack what is this concept of reproach and what does it mean to us today. Number one, we know that it was still on them long after God had delivered them. So whatever this reproach thing is, it's still hanging there long, 40 years after they've been delivered. Number two, it was of great concern to God 
enough that he stopped them in their tracks and said, we need to deal with this right now. So we got a problem. And the third thing, that the clue in Scripture was, it seemingly was the thing that kept them out of the promised land. The reproach was the thing. Whatever reproach is, it's a hindrance that has to be dealt with before they can step into the fullness of what God has for them. So whatever's going on here, it's, it's, it's keeping them out of the promised land, it's a concern to God, and it's been there a long time, and it was dealt with in the moment that they were circumcised. So now I've got some clues. I'm ready to go on a journey through Scripture. I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. Now I think the key is for us to begin to understand what is reproach. Because I think if you, it, once you, once I start to unpack this concept for you tonight, I think there's some of you in the room that are going to, you're going to start shouting when you realize what God has done for you. And when you, when you, when you see the pathway to step into the fullness of what God has for you, it's going to blow your mind the way that it blew my mind. So here's the thing. 139 times in scripture, the word reproach is listed. It's, it's used in scripture. It goes all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. Reproach. So, if it's there 139 times, why have I never heard, why, Brother Tim, have we never heard a single sermon on the concept of reproach? You don't hear it. You hear sermons on sin, you hear sermons on on atonement, you hear sermons on the substitutionary death of Jesus, all that stuff, but you never hear anybody talk about reproach, but yet 139 times it's there, and in this instance, it's clear that it is a hindrance to delivered people. It's a hindrance to people who have experienced salvation and deliverance through Jesus. So there's got to be something there. And I think the reason we don't understand it is because we don't understand. I'm going to give you just a, a, I won't dive super deep into this because I've got some really powerful stuff I want to get to, but I want to give you some backdrops some backstory here. I think part of the reason that we don't fully understand it is because we don't understand the culture to which the Bible was written. So... The cult, there's a huge difference, not just that it was 2,000 years ago that Jesus lived and longer than that that our forefathers in the Old Testament lived, not just that it was ancient Near East and far away and a long, land long ago, it's more than that. Just the, the, the way that their culture was organized in biblical times was very different than our culture today. In America and in the West, our culture is what we'd call an individualistic culture. So in other words... I am who I am based on how I'm different than everybody else around me in the American culture. It's, a, it's another way to describe that sociologist would say it's a guilt and innocence culture. I stand, whether I'm guilty or innocent, I stand alone. And only God can judge me. That's what you hear a lot coming from our culture today. Only God can judge me. Who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. So that's that, that Western individualistic culture. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need nobody. I'm a strong and independent man or strong and independent woman. That's, those are very Western th- lines of thinking. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture and cultures even today on the East, like the, your Oriental cultures are all this way, it's not how, how, how different can I be, but it's the community is everything. It's a collectivist culture is what we would call that. And you might have heard the term before, shame and honor culture. It's a shame and honor culture. Like in, in uh, Japan, you wouldn't dare dream of bringing dishonor on your family. If you did, you'd run yourself through with a sword because it's better to die than to bring dishonor on your family. That's the worst crime that you can commit. In the, in the West, in our culture, the worst crime you can commit is to offend an individual. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to incite you. I, I don't want to offend. We, we tiptoe around the offense of individuals. But in the East, the worst thing that you can possibly do is to bring dishonor on your community. And so it's a different line of thinking, and it has a lot to do with inclusion and exclusion. The number one need that all of us have is to be included in our community, in our family, in our church community. We want to be in that community. So the reason we don't always understand the concept of reproach is because we don't have that line of thinking. But reproach... What it actually is, it's the shame associated with this act or thing that I've done or said, or, or this, it's the shame, it's, it's, if God deals with the problem underneath, it's the stench that remains. And it causes us to feel isolation from our community. 
So this is reproach. Reproach is what's left over. It's the um, asterisk over your name. It's God can set you free from a lifestyle of drugs and alcohol and partying and all of that, but there's this asterisk now that's over your head that when you walk through the door, that's what people lead with in their heads. They say, oh yeah, I'm glad he's in church because boy, let me tell you, that guy was wild. And then God forbid, God should call that person into ministry. That's the first thing people think of. That's the person that was divorced. That's the person that filed bankruptcy. That's the person that made a fool of themselves. That's a person that somebody made a fool of them. See what I mean? It's the shame that's attached to it that identifies you. It's the label that you carry long after the problem has been dealt with. So now go back to what, what God said to Joshua. He said, today I need to deal with something that's been hanging over your head since the day I set you free. You don't know who you are. You don't understand your identity. You don't know the things that define you. You're still walking around like a slave when I have set you free. And so what needs to happen now is we need to roll away the reproach of Egypt so that you can go into the fullness of God in the promised land. You're never going to get there until we can deal with the shame and the label that you're walking around carrying like a suit of chain mail and you can't carry it. So this is the thing, and, and it, the, the problem that is being dealt with in, in the reproach is shame and isolation. That's what it is. It's feeling excluded because of our shame. I don't belong. I don't deserve. I'll never get a seat at that table. I want to lean into community in my, in my church family. I want to lean into connectedness. I want to lean into those relationships because it feels good, but I don't belong there. I don't deserve it. And what that is, is shame talking. So you hear God saying, look, you've been walking around 40 years forgiven of your sins. You've been walking around for a long time. I've dealt with the problem underneath for a long time, but you haven't stepped into this new identity. And that's what he's telling the children of Israel. You need to step into a new identity as we re roll away the reproach. So what I'm hoping, before we wrap up our time here this evening, is that we can put some ammo in your, in, in your ch we can chamber a few rounds when the enemy comes against you with that shame talk, that you can push back and you can fight back against what he has to say and replace it with the truth of God's word. So let me, let me just give you a framework here of where we're going, because I'm gonna share a couple of stories in scripture, just kind of rapid fire. We're gonna go through some stories in scripture. And once you start to see through the lens of reproach and shame and how it works and how the enemy likes to work, you'll see it in a lot of stories, not just the ones we talk about this evening, but you'll see the way that shame just hangs there and it thwarts the plan of God. And, and hopefully you'll be able to push back on that. But reproach, shame, reproach, can be placed on you for one of, one of four ways. Number one, it could be the family that you're born into. So you'll see that in scripture happens a lot. Somebody's born into a family and their forefathers did something and they just own it. They just wear it and it holds them back. Okay. Another way that reproach can be brought on you is by something that is done to you, completely irrespective of what you may or may not have done yourself. And it's unjust and it's unfair, but reproach, when, when something is done to you, it can bring great shame on you. So you heard what I did for a living. I'm, a, I'm the director of foster care for Compact Family Services, so I deal a lot with children that have been abused and neglected. And I can tell you that when children have been abused, particularly sexually abused, when children have been sexually abused, then they wear reproach on them like a suit of chainmail. It holds them down, it holds them back. And there's no way that you can get through to them with words by telling them, sweetheart, this is not you. This was done to you. But the shame is so heavy, it takes the intervention of Holy Spirit to break that off of them. So reproach, I, I, look, I'm mindful that in this room, there are people in this room that wear shame on them, and it's no fault of your own. It's something that was done to you. And so we're going to talk about that. So it could be the family you're born into, something that was done to you. It could also be something that you did. You did it to your own self. You failed. You made a mistake. You sinned. Maybe you blew it up big time. That brings reproach. And it's one of those things that it's really hard for you 
to walk in your new identity because even though you believe with all of your heart that God has forgiven you, you feel isolated because of the, the things in your past, because of the things that you've done. And then it may be just a lie that we've partnered with can also bring reproach. Somebody said a word over you that you agreed with, and that lie becomes part of your identity, and it becomes part of your shame. You hang your head. You walk uh, beneath your calling, and you can't step into what God has for you. All of those things can bring shame and isolation and reproach. But I'm here to tell you today that God is concerned about that just as much as he was the day he forgave you of your sins. Just as much as the day that he redeemed you from your sins, he wants to roll away your reproach. And he wants to welcome you with open arms and peel away all those layers of shame and isolation that have kept you living beneath your purpose. So, just a little more context to set this up, and then we'll talk about some stories. Let me talk about Adam and Eve for just a minute. Um, Adam and Eve, after their failure, we, we all understand that they... they um, you know, we're, we're given the whole garden to enjoy, and they were just told, hey, don't touch these two trees. Well, you know the story. Adam reached, uh, Eve reached out and grabbed the forbidden fruit, shared it with her husband, and immediately there was something that happened. God showed up as he did every day in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the evening. He showed up, and he's hollering for them. Adam, Eve, do you remember what happened? What was their response? What did they say? What do they say in Genesis 3, 9, and 10? Do what? What'd you say, Sister? Yeah. They said, I heard you calling. Adam said, I heard your voice. I recognized that you were here. I knew it was time for you to be here. And I heard your voice. But I was unable to come near to you because I was ashamed and I was afraid. So I hid myself. I heard your voice calling, but I was full of reproach, and I didn't think I deserved to be in your presence. And immediately God says, well, who told you that? You know you've been wearing the same birthday suit every night when I showed up, right? <laughs> what God says, you know you're not wearing anything different than you were last night or the night before or a hundred nights before that when I showed up. So what has changed? And suddenly they became aware of their shame and their shame drove them from the presence of God. They felt excluded from God's presence. And so God says, now that you're aware of your shame, I'm going to have to deal with that. So he fashions clothes out of an animal skin, and he covers them up. He covers up their nakedness. So he deals with that piece of it. But ultimately, it would take a little bit of time before God would ultimately, once and for all, deal with that reproach. And we're going to get to that in just a little bit, the way God ends up dealing with it on the cross. That's where we're going. So Adam and Eve were the first in Scripture to show us the power of reproach. This is what shame can feel like. They, they weren't even allowed to stay in the garden because they were isolated based on their sin, their failure, and their reproach. So they were driven from the presence of God. Now, you see, we've already talked about Joshua and how Joshua, um, in Joshua chapter 5, now tells the children of Israel, um, you know, I, I, told you, I told you that there were these, these certain clues that were left for me in Scripture that this reproach thing has been on them a long time, long after they were set free, and God was concerned about it and wanted to deal with it. It was keeping them out of the promised land, and it was then ultimately dealt with when they were circumcised. Now go back, now that we understand what reproach is, and we look at that scripture again, and we see it played out just so beautifully. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. That they, their, their concept, their identity had been so marred by their 400 years of servitude in Egypt that even though God brought this miraculous deliverance to them, they weren't able to step into the fullness that God had for them because they still saw themselves as servants. They didn't see themselves as children of God. They didn't see themselves as the beloved. They didn't see themselves as the redeemed, as the recipients of God's mercy and his miracles. They, they still saw themselves as servants, servants in Egypt. And that's why as you turn the pages of the Exodus story, time after time, page after page, you see these children of Israel complaining and saying they wanted to go back. I want to go back where we were before. 
I don't want to go into the promised land. I want to go back to Egypt and to Egyptian bondage. Why? Because that's what felt best with their concept of who they were, that reproach that they wore. I don't deserve what's ahead of me. I would rather have what's behind me. I don't deserve the full deliverance and the fullness of Christ. What I really think I deserve is to go back to that old lifestyle. And until God, until God deals with your understanding of your identity and he rolls away the reproach on you, you're going to be just like that dog returning to its vomit time after time because you don't understand that you don't belong there anymore. It's the reproach. We've got to allow the Holy Spirit to deal with the reproach in our lives, this feeling of shame and isolation that we're pushed away from God because of what we have done. And, I, and I've seen now through Scripture, we've made the case from Scripture that just because you're saved doesn't mean that reproach has been dealt with. Just because you've experienced the forgiveness of God doesn't mean that you now have a full crystal clear understanding of your identity in Christ. That's something that you need to lay before the Lord and say, God, I want you to deal with this. I want you to help me understand who I am as a child. So have you ever heard the story of... Um, 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of Mephibosheth, the story of David's uh, best friend Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So if you've heard it, then you understand. Uh, you probably go two steps ahead of me and know where I'm going when we talk about reproach with Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. Of course, David and Jonathan had a close relationship. They were like brothers, closer than brothers. And when God rejected Saul, King Saul, there was a bloody turnover of power where Saul and his entire family and all of his men were uh, killed in battle. Saul lost his life. And Jonathan lost his life. Well, what happened in the interim was when word reached where Saul's son Mephibosheth was living, he was just a young boy, a preschooler. And when word reached where he was living that this coup was happening and that Saul was under attack and that this, things weren't looking good, the, the young boy had a nanny that snatched him up and took off running and she tripped and fell and in the process, poor Mephibosheth, was, he ended up lame in both legs for his life. For his whole life, he was lame in both legs. So when you fast forward now, long after the transition of power, when David assumes the throne, one day he's sitting there and he says, you know, Jonathan was so good to me. My best friend, Jonathan, I miss him. And he starts asking around, he says, is there anybody from Jonathan's family that I can bless? And somebody says, well, yeah, I think there's this boy of his. He's lame in both feet, can't walk. And he lives in this place called Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? Nothing. No, I mean, it means nothing. <laughs> he lives in the land of nothing, and he's a nobody and from a family of evil criminals. So this boy was born this way, and shame is all over him, and it's all through no fault of his own. He didn't do anything. Somebody, somebody dropped him. Somebody dropped the boy. He was born into a family where his dad rejected the word of the, or his grandfather rejected the word of the Lord and brought all sorts of trouble on Israel. How much of that is Mephibosheth's fault? But how much of it now is his to carry? All of it. So this is what happens when shame and reproach is put on you and you didn't deserve it. It's unjust. You didn't ask for it. You didn't do anything to step into it. It's generational and you carry it. And I'm convinced that there are a few people in this room tonight that have been dropped. Somebody dropped you, and you either walk with a limp or you don't walk at all. And you, 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 you're just like Mephibosheth. You're living in this distant land of nothing. And David says, I'm looking for that young man because I want to bring him to my table. And so he sends for him, and he brings him to the table of the king. And Mephibosheth is scared to death when he comes to the door. You want to know why? Reproach. He's like, I can't go into the king's chambers. Look at me. I'm a cripple born into a family of criminals, and I live in the land of nowhere. Like, what about that says that I deserve to come into the king's chambers? And the king says, no, 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 you don't understand. I've made a deal that I intend to keep. Now, do you remember what God said way back in the day to Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, the seed of the woman will one day 
bruised the heel of the seed, or bruised the, crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. So he struck a deal in that moment where he said, I don't know what this is going to look like before it's all said and done. We got a lot of twists and turns ahead of us, but I know in the end, I'm going to bring redemption to this whole story. There's a deal that I intend to keep. And so this is what happens between David now when he says, there's a deal that I intend to keep that I made with, Saul, with, a, excuse me, with Jonathan, and I'm looking for his boy so that I can bless him. And so he brings him into his house and he says, not only am I here to bless you, not only are you going to have a good hot meal tonight, he said, you're going to eat at this table for the rest of your life. And I'm going to restore your father's, uh, I'm going to restore your father's treasures to your account. And I'm going to assign people to tend to those treasures for you because you're lame. I'm going to take care of you. And so this is what happens. God God rolls away the reproach of Mephibosheth. He he cares enough about this reproach that he's going to deal with it right here and right now. That reproach was on that boy because of no fault of his own. I want that to be an encouragement to some of you in this room tonight. Some of you that are carrying shame that is not connected to what you did. Somebody else did it to you. Somebody else dropped you along the way. Somebody else injured you. Somebody else, maybe you were born into a family and you've never gotten over it. That thing that happened in your life that you have no power over. You need to, you need to go back and study the story of Mephibosheth and let God roll away the reproach of your past that you had nothing to do with. Okay, I got to go on. There's more things I want to share with you tonight. So there's another story. I told you that it could be the thing that, that, uh, uh, that was done to you or the family that you were born into, Okay. We saw that laid out there in Mephibosheth. But shame can also be brought onto you because of the thing that you did to yourself. So I know there are people in this room. Not me. I have never. Me and and Brother Tim, Karen down here in the front row, maybe Connie, I'm not sure. None of us have ever made any mistakes, right? (laughs) Notwithstanding that lie right there. But the rest, we've, we've never made any mistakes. But I'm sure some of you in the room have, poor folks. You're going to find some encouragement in this story that I'm going to share with you right here. Happen. Let's talk just a minute about the prodigal son. Because the prodigal son, when you have the right lens to understand that story, it will help you see reproach in its fullest, clearest picture and what the father wants to do about it. So here's, here's what happened. The young man looked his father in the eye one day and said, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And I want you just to, in fact, you're dead to me right now. And I want just whatever's coming to me in my inheritance, just cut me a check. I'm going to get out of here because I know everything and you know nothing. Does that sound like the teenagers you know? So he cashes out his inheritance and his father graciously gives it to him. And he leaves. And the Bible says he goes to a far country and he spends his money Like he's at a casino, right? Like he just goes through it. He has friends for a season, but now he has no friends because he's spent all of his money. And he finds himself in a pig pen, slopping the pigs, wishing that he could eat like the pigs that he's feeding are eating. Okay? We know the moment where he comes to his senses. He wakes up and he says to himself, he's like, I don't know the way out of here, but I do know that the servants that live in my dad's back 40 and that take care of his estate are all doing better than I'm doing right now. And he says, I'm wondering if I can sneak in the back door. I'm wondering if I can make it all the way home and have a side conversation with dad and submit a job application and just go on the payroll. If maybe he'll let me slop, he didn't have pigs, but maybe maybe he'll let me take care of the animals at his house if I do this. And so he rehearses this story all the way home, and you can just hear it dripping with reproach, dripping with shame. He's like, I don't deserve to be called a son. That's what he said. I don't, de- what does that mean? He's saying, I have so much reproach, I never, be- I never deserve to sit at the table in my father's house. But if you just give me a job, just give me a chance to earn my way back. Just give me a chance to work for you, Dad. And he's rehearsing the story over and over all the way home until he gets almost home and the Bible says the father sees him, runs to him, and embraces him. And the boy gets about three words of his story out of his mouth. 
Father, I no longer deserve to, and his, his father just stops him right in his tracks. And he says, wait just a minute, just stop right there, son. He said, the only thing I care about is that my son used to be dead and now he's alive. And he puts a ring and a robe on him like we sang about tonight. Thank you, Pastor Justin. I was excited when I saw that song. Um, puts a ring and a robe on him, signet ring, and he's like, puts shoes on him, he throws a party. And he, he, he throws this block party for the whole neighborhood to see. So where the boy wanted to sneak in the back door and just slide back in as a servant, the father's like, no, no, we're going through the front door and we're going to blow some trumpets and we're going to make a scene. Now, I need you to hear this tonight. Why did the father have to throw a party? Because he needed to change the narrative about the boy. If he, do, if he doesn't throw the party, now hear me on this, if he doesn't throw the party and he goes with the boy's suggestion to let him in the back door, he spends the rest of his life carrying reproach. He might get back in the house, but he's never going to be a son. He might get back in the house, but he's never going to be anything more than an asterisk. Yeah, that's the boy that came home, but let me tell you what he did. So the father says, I'm going to do something so ridiculous so over the top that when these neighbors of mine see that boy, they can't even form the words, can you believe what he did? The first thing that's going to fall out of their mouth is, did you see how much that father loved his son? Changing the narrative. Changing the narrative. So that's what happens when we come home to the father. He changes the narrative. He don't let us in the back door. He don't ask us to sneak around back and wear a disguise so nobody will see us. He throws a party so big and so extravagant that no one will ever forget how much he loves us. What does the Bible say happens when one sinner comes home? The angels in heaven rejoice. As it is in heaven, let it be on earth. You know you have a part to play in this, right? Beloved of God, all of you in the room that are saints of God, when you see a sinner come home, you need to be leading the parade. You need to be leading the parade. So ridiculous should be our celebration that people don't have time to spread rumors and gossip about whatever that person did before they came home. The narrative should be, the narrative should be how much does the father love that child and he shows it through that church. He's showing it through his people. Wow. That's what happens when we come back to the Father, is that he, he rewrites the story completely. It wasn't just, it, listen, if he just wanted to deal with the boy's sin, he could have let him in the back door. But he wanted to deal with his shame and reproach. So he threw a party. And I need you to hear that tonight, because I know there are some of you in the room that, have, that, that maybe you've stumbled along the way, or you've sinned, or you've got all these stories. You got, I, I like to say it like this. We've all got chapters in our book that we don't want read out loud. Like, can we just skip that story? We'll just skim it, right? We've all got those chapters. But I just want you to know that we have a father that is not just concerned about writing your name in the Lamb's book of life. He's not just concerned about what happens after you die. He wants to deal with that shame and reproach that has left you feeling isolated and pushed away from him and from his presence. He has a plan and he wants to do that. So, my goodness, I, I gotta hurry because there's a little more I gotta share with you. Let's talk just briefly about the woman who was caught in adultery. In John chapter eight, do you remember her story? Shame and reproach. The whole story is full of shame and reproach. So this is a story that illustrates what happens when we live under reproach, under lies that are told about us, okay? This woman who was caught in adultery, if you've been in church very long at all and you've heard that story, maybe even as a kid you'd, you'd connect these dots, but for sure as an adult you've got to connect the dots. The Bible says this woman was caught in the, quote, very act of adultery. Now, I want to keep this PG rated here tonight, but when we're talking about the very act of adultery, you don't have to be very creative to know what we're talking about here, right? Is that a one-player game or a two-player game, right? There are two people involved in adultery, but the Bible says only one was being dealt with. She's thrown into the court. They're, they're going to use her to trap Jesus, and they turn this little, this little spot under a tree somewhere, they turn it into a makeshift courtroom, and they throw this woman down in front of Jesus and start accusing her and saying, she deserves death, 
She was caught in the very act of adultery. Not, not, at no point in this process did anybody say, okay, well, where's, where's her partner? It wasn't important because she was just caught in the crossfire. She was a political tool to get to Jesus. So truth, justice, those things were not important. Just whatever they needed to say to catch Jesus in a lie, and she's caught in the middle of it. And so the Bible says that Jesus does this thing that he's now famous for, where he kneels down and he writes in the dirt. I have no idea what he wrote in the dirt. I'm not even going to take a stab at it. Some preachers will. I'm just going to leave that alone. Scripture says he wrote in the dirt. And he stood up. It, it may very well have been just to confuse everybody. I don't know. But he stands up and he says, Okay, you're right. She deserves death. So why don't the one among you without any sin be the one to throw the first stone and we'll get this party over with? And then he just kneels down and he writes in the dirt some more. And by the time he looks up, everybody's gone. Because they realize that nobody there was qualified to end this woman's life. Nobody met that scriptural standard. They couldn't throw the first stone because all of them had sins. And uh, nobody wanted to be exposed for their sins. This prophet's liable to go on a you know, telltale list and start telling everybody, reading, reading, their, reading their mail, they didn't want any part of that. So they just leave one at a time until it's nobody except Jesus and this woman. See, here's the thing. If the standard for inclusion in community in the body of Christ, if the standard for inclusion is perf- perfect holiness in our own strength, we're all out of luck. We're all at a, and that's the point Jesus was making. He says, well, if you want to use that standard, fine, but we're going to apply it across the board, not, to just, not just to this disenfranchised woman who has no one to protect her, you big coward. We're going to apply it to everybody across the board. And after everybody left, Jesus looks at the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I guess nobody accuses me. And then if I can take a little bit of liberty with his wordage here, he says, well, I don't reproach you either. I'm not ashamed of you either. He pulls her close. I'm not ashamed to be seen with you and only you. It's just you and me standing in this circle. And I'm not ashamed at all. And then he says, then he says, he has the audacity to say to her, go and sin no more. Let me ask you a question. How many people in this woman's life do you think have said those words to her? Probably a lot. You know daddy said it at one point. Mama said it. Everybody in her family said it. Probably everybody in the community, when they looked down their nose at her, she was a woman of the streets. Stop sinning. You need to stop sinning. You need to stop sinning. You need to stop sinning. But it wasn't until that moment that suddenly she has the empowerment to actually do it. Why? Because she had partnered with lies that needed to be broken off of her that had brought so much reproach and isolation. And when Jesus spoke the truth and he says, I don't reproach you. I'm not ashamed of you. The shame is gone. Now he can actually say it and get somewhere. And that's true for a lot of you who believe some lies over the the years that have been spoken over you. Lies you partnered with from the enemy that have caused you to live at a certain level or return over and over again to the same sin. You need to hear this today. You are not, you are not that person. God has better for you, and he doesn't reproach you. So I'm going to land this plane right now. You're going to be glad we didn't skip this part. I want you to understand how all of this happened. This, this is the most important thing that I'm going to say to you tonight. How, all, how God deals with our reproach is through his covenant relationship with us, but it's, it was dealt with specifically on the cross of Jesus Christ. So hear this, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, I want to read this verse to you in verse 2. I'll start with one. Uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't just deal with your sin, he dealt with your shame. 
Listen to what I'm saying here. He didn't just deal with your sin, he dealt with your shame. The Bible says he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right end of the Father. So in that one verse, we hear language of exclusion and language of inclusion. Your shame was put on Jesus. Do you remember the moment when Jesus looked up to the Father and he said, he said, Father, why are you forsaking me? He says, why does it feel so alone in this moment? Why do I feel this isolation that I have never experienced before? As a member of the Godhead, I've never felt isolated until this moment. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you pushed me away? Here's what Hebrews says. He was enduring the cross and he was making a mockery of the shame that was on you. That shame was resting on his shoulders in that moment when he said, Why, God, do I feel the way that I do right now? But what was right on the other side? The Bible says he, was, he felt the full isolation and rejection of our shame. All of it. But on the other side, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down next to the Father. Now, I need to let you in on a little secret. There is a conversation in heaven that is happening right now because of that whole exchange where Jesus is seated next to the Father. Guess what he's talking about? You. Amen. Guess what he's saying? It ain't about your shame. I'll give you a hint. It's not about your failures. It's not about the lies you've partnered with. It's not about the things that have been done to you. It's not about your laundry list of sins. He's listening, he's leaning over to the Father and he's saying, that one is to die for. That one is mine. That one belongs to me. That one is worthy. That's what he says. You, you, don't, you don't believe me. Let me give you just a little scripture. Just one scripture and we'll, we'll wrap up. Hebrews 7.25, just a few pages earlier. It says... Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. That's completely. He's able to completely save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So with God, set, Jesus sitting next to the Father after fully feeling the full weight of our shame and isolation and rejection on the cross, he's sitting next to the Father and he's having a conversation about you. And I want you to listen in on it. I want you to lean into it. I want you to believe what's being said in heaven. There is nothing, there is nothing the enemy that can, that can say about your past that is relevant in this conversation. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you've leaned into the grace of God in your life, look, that stuff is old news. God wants to throw a party to make you forget about that. God wants to embrace you today. He wants to, he wants to rewrite your story. And that's what I love about how completely God redeems. That's where we started here this evening. That's where I want to wrap up. God so completely redeems our story that it's not just about making sure you make it to heaven. It's about making sure you get into the promised land, friends. Like the, the children of Israel couldn't, couldn't get into the fullness of what God had for them as long as those lies were hanging over them, as long as that old identity was hanging there. This was something needed to be dealt with. Forty years after Egypt, this needed to be dealt with. And I hope that there are some of you in the room tonight can lean into this and say, Lord, I'm tired of carrying it. I'm tired of carrying the shame. I'm tired of carrying the reproach. Tired of believing the lies that have been said about me. I'm tired of feeling like there's always an asterisk over my head that I can't have community. I can't walk with, in, in relationships with other believers because I don't deserve it. My story's too messed up. Those are, those are the kinds of lies the enemy uses to manipulate and hold us back from the fullness of God. But you need to know tonight that he'll roll away your reproach if you'll let him do it. But this is extremely important for everybody in this room. We, if, you're, if you're a believer tonight, this is extremely important. That sort of embracing people is the tangible expression of what God is doing in heaven. As it is in heaven, let it be on earth. So if God has forgiven, if God has embraced them, the best way that they're going to know it is when the church embraces them. And when Jesus embraces them through his body, that's the best way that they're going to know it. And so... If, uh, I, I guess uh, there, there's a twofold ask here tonight. Number one, if you feel like you're living in reproach and you feel like you got all those asterisks hanging over your head for all the failures and mistakes in your life, 
My ask right now is that the Holy Spirit will just impress on you this identity of who you are in Christ and what's being said about you in the throne room of God right now. But the second ask is for all of us as believers to see ourselves as partners with God, throw in the party to welcome home the sinner, embracing them as it is in heaven, let it be done on earth. Won't you stand with me tonight? I'm going to pray for you. Thank you, Lord. Did I lie to you? I told you that it's powerful, right? It's powerful stuff. I lied to you. It changed my life. I'm, that's, not, that's not an exaggeration. When the Lord shared this stuff with me, it changed my life. It rewrote my story and helped me understand how completely and perfectly he wants to rewrite all of our stories. So I want to pray for you right now, okay? Father, we honor you and we bless you. And we thank you, God. You're so redemptive in the way you find us and you, you exchange truth for lies and you give us your truth and you take our lies. You exchange our messed up past for our bright future in Christ. You speak over us, Lord, the truths of who you see us to be. And I pray for every person in this room, regardless, Lord, of how that shame got on them, if they're carrying shame, I pray that you'd be able to just break it off of them right now, tonight, in Jesus' name. I pray that you'd set them free, Lord. You'd set them free. You'd give them your heart. Give them clarity. Give them an understanding, Lord. We bless you. We honor you. While Pastor Justin is playing, I, I, I want to give you an opportunity. If you're here tonight and you just feel like you're just wearing that sort of reproach thing on you and you need someone to pray with you, to help break that off of you, you want to be free from that, we've got some prayer warriors in the house tonight that can help with that, that have experienced this kind of freedom. So while he's playing this song, if you want special prayer tonight, just slip down here to the front and let's just agree together that the Lord will just lift this off of you tonight. You can walk out of here free. Jesus name. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.